0: Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome, everyone online. Welcome back here on this Transfiguration Sunday. Um, you know, I as I was sitting here, I realized uh, that we've been doing this, this COVID thing almost a year now. Uh, I realized, like, when we, you know, get back to group singing and stuff, I'm gonna have to relearn the tones of the first service and, uh, uh, you know, relearn handing communion out in person again and all these kind of things, that's going to blow away. Um, and, uh, so, but it's been almost a year and, you know, we're not quite out of the woods yet. You know, you can see the numbers starting to go down. Vaccinations are coming. We probably still have a few months before we can just go, uh, full, full normal. But, you know, I can remember when it first hit thinking back that, you know, first I was like, oh, this isn't that bad. And, you know, maybe we're a little overly worried. Uh, and then it, hit really hard, and it turns out it really was that bad. Uh, so then we did something we didn't particularly like to do. We had to shut down uh, the church. We even had to shut down our preschool, um, you know, because we didn't know. Uh, and then as the summer came, uh, we were doing those inside film, pre-filmed services. Uh, we didn't have anything in person, but in the middle of summer, we started to realize that outside air, Was not as dangerous, so we decided to go ahead and give that a try. And we had the outside service, and now maybe some of you remember the 7 a.m. outside service. It was so peaceful, so serene, you know, hearing the birds chirp, and it was 7 a.m. And uh, so, uh, but we did that. And so our knowledge knowledge got a little bit better, and we did it. We had a lot of protocols when we had that. Uh, I remember some of the disinfecting protocols we had, you know. We, we, we had the back door for the, for the restrooms propped open so you wouldn't have to touch the knob uh, we had everyone sitting on the hard brown folding chairs not the soft blue ones because we were worried about disinfecting um, and you know and we had and we had some really good and we cleaned that bathroom we had some really good cleaners I mean that you could have eaten off that bathroom this summer um, at least on Sunday mornings uh, but I mean and, and we did it well but uh, our knowledge got better then as time went by, and, and we adapted. And so we realized COVID isn't really as much a surface virus as it is an airborne virus. So we could go and sit on the cushy blue chairs. Now, uh, we don't have to worry as much about contact surfaces. It's not no danger. It's a low danger. Uh, and so, but really, it's all about the air and uh, the air you breathe. And the, but that's kind of how science goes, right? you you gather the data you can and you come to the best conclusion you can with the data you have and you always have in the back of your mind the possibility that you'll have to go and change your conclusion and change your sort of working thesis with new data and and for example take this whole mask thing right Uh, when covid first hit the country uh, we had a limited supply of masks out there. You know, I'd never worn—I'd uh, never worn a mask. Uh, I, I think I'd had to wear them in the hospital visiting people sometimes, but that was it. I didn't have anything in my house, and so there was a concern to make sure that all the health workers had masks. So Dr. Fauci got on TV and he said, "Don't put a mask on," but it wasn't because. He he was thinking that, you know, COVID is no big deal. He wanted to make sure the nurses had masks. And then as the supply chain caught up, then it became, all right, now I want you to wear a mask. And then Facebook lit up uh, with all these people going, what is it here, Fauci? First, we have to, first you don't wear a mask, then you wear a mask. What's the deal? You're changing all the time. What is it? And I'm like, and I'm like, don't get in a Facebook debate don't get in a Facebook debate. I've never seen anyone change their mind because of a Facebook debate. But I was like, that isn't how science works. You know, you, sci- science isn't about there's one answer and that's it. And once you figure it out, you're done forever. I mean, if you're God, you have that kind of knowledge. The rest of us, we don't. And, uh, and, and you know, that's, science isn't about finding that one perfect, eternal, absolute, unchanging truth forever and always, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's not how science works. Science is more about making the best conclusions that fit with the available data. And that data is constantly improved on, so we revise our theory and we work with it. We adjust, we adapt. But changing our position based on new data doesn't mean that we're making things up or that science can't be trusted because they change their conclusions all the time. Um, nor, does, nor does it prove uh, that there must be some nefarious plan behind it. That's why they keep changing it on us. They keep changing it on us, whoever they is. I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago by a theoretical physicist um, I I sometimes understand what he says and I sometimes don't. Uh, It's probably about 2080. But I I listen to it. I try to keep appraised of science, keep appraised of, uh, you know, try to keep my knowledge fresh. So I'm listening to this theoretical physicist. He's been working since the 80s. And he was uh, one of those guys that has such a big brain that he can, you know, ask a question like Are we really living in a black hole? Is our universe a black hole? And how would we know? Well, he's the guy that can sit down and go, well, if we were inside a black hole, gravity would be this, mass would be this, light would be this, You know, there'd be this expansion. And then he'd, he'd start running the numbers and he could come to a, you know, a reasonable working theory. And uh, he has that ability. I always envy people with that ability. I wish I could do, run the numbers like that. Um, and he said, This is a guy who's written multiple books over his lifetime, published papers, done studies, works at Columbia. And he said, uh, he's generally a believer in the multiple universe theory. He believes there are multiple universes. I haven't read deep enough to find out how many he thinks there are. uh, But he really believes there are multiple universes and he's got the data to prove it. And so he's run this number and that number and the other number. Uh, But he said, somebody asked him, you know, what would happen if we found something, you know, a telescope went up there and found something that showed that that couldn't be true. And uh, what would that mean for you? And he said, I'd be overjoyed to find new data that would help expand my knowledge. I'd be more than happy to take all my books and throw them in the recycling bin and readjust and start a whole new theory right before retirement. Because that's how science works, right? Because he's a scientist. That's how science works. You adjust based on the new data. You don't pick a story and stick to it. Now, there's a couple of things, of course, we can get from his approach that I was kind of impressed by. Uh, One is there's always more out there that I don't know. There's always more out there that I don't know. And I could always be wrong. I will never know it all, and I could always be wrong. So what's the job of a teacher? How do you teach if you could always be wrong? Well, the the, the goal of teaching then is not so much about transferring a set of absolute facts from one brain to another. And you sort of picture in sci-fi, there coming a day when, you know, information transfers, kind of like the Matrix, you know, will just plug something in and I'll go, motorcycle riding, you know, and then away I go. Because um, that's how you do it. You have to shake your head, right? You have to. Um, that's just transferring information. Your goal as a teacher isn't just, isn't just transferring information, although we do do that. It's, and it's not to give them all the answers because you don't have all the answers. What you're trying to do is give them the answers we have so far and explain why those are the answers we have as best as we know it and give them the tools on their own to take the ball and run with it when when you've retired or when you're gone to discover more beyond what you have. That's what a good teacher is. They equip you with what they know to find more that you don't. The Bible says that teaching is a spiritual gift. It says in Ephesians 4.11, this is in your bulletins there, Ephesians 4.11. The gifts that he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until all of us come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. You can see here what teaching in the church is for. One, equipping the saints for ministry. That's the church members. Equipping to do ministry, giving you tools to do it. And two, build up the body of Christ. Build up the church. Build up the church community. So a teacher is the one who's supposed to be teaching people to do the work themselves. The teacher is supposed to be giving the best knowledge we have so all of us in a community can take the gospel and run with it. In the early church, teachers had one more function. And that was to weed out all the weird things that self-proclaimed, wandering, self-appointed teacher prophets would do. And if you read through the letters of Paul, you'll see that this was a big problem. It's like, no sooner would Paul go into a town and he'd set up a church, and then the Holy Spirit would call him to go on to the next town. As soon as he's in the next town, somebody else has swooped in and said, oh, wait, what Paul told you wasn't right. And they would they had some weird ideas they'd come in. Uh, they, you know, they would say, for example, and I've, I've mentioned this before, they'd say that Jesus wasn't really human. He was just a spirit. Or they'd say he wasn't divine. Or they'd say that, well, to be a Christian means you first have to follow all the Jewish dietary laws. You'd have to get circumcised as an adult. You would have to not eat the pork and all those things. And so then Paul would hear about this and go, and then write a letter back. And so the part of the purpose of the teachers was to help prevent this sort of thing from happening, so people wouldn't just sort of be blowing around with every person who came in. And uh, so the teachers had to start constructing a framework of beliefs, and the early church had to do that. And though that framework of beliefs became our church doctrines, our creeds, and these were never intended to answer every question to every problem and solve everything for the future and wrap all of Christianity into one statement they were really just designed to sort of be boundaries to keep out the crazy stuff, the weirdest stuff, the most extreme views. And, but the role of the teacher or the apostle was never to have the one perfect Christianity that everybody followed exactly. But it kind of became that uh, in places because and I think that when, when you're teaching, if you want to give up and you want to teach absolutes and, and and total certainty and hard answers that's a lot easier than than trying to get up there and say I'm helping to give you the best truth we have at the moment and the tools for you to help learn more and experience for yourself so if you're in a world if you're one of those Christians that's like a hard you know hard truth Christian and I'm not saying there are no hard truths I just think there's some and then there's not some. But anyway, so if you're one of those that thinks we kind of have it figured out, this is the answer, this is what the Bible says, this is what the church teaches, bing, 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 bing. And you got your answers prepared for every question, like where did the dinosaurs come from and why does it say this in this passage, but this and other, And you've got all those answers and you get up to preach. Your task then is simply to pick the truth of the day and then pad it with uh, rhetorical devices like Uh, touching stories, clever one-liners, pregnant pauses that emphasize that this, in fact, is what God wants. Now, I'm over-dramatizing. I won't say, of course. Uh, Some of that's just good public speaking. You know, I've done clever one-liners, or as my kids will tell you sometimes, less than clever one-liners. I've done touching stories, but I, you know, I don't see my job as being just to sort of transfer doctrine from one brain to another. I, I admit, I have a limited knowledge. I'm just doing the best I can with the knowledge I have. I could be wrong. God could come and open my mind to something new. The Holy Spirit could come and expand my vision and my horizons beyond anything I know. God has done it before. He did it with Jesus, and it threw a lot of people off. And some some listened, and some weren't sure what to think about it. But it is always possible that God will come in and correct my understanding of who he is and what his will is. But I will still use the Bible as my guide, as the basis for what we believe and teach. I will still insist that anyone who comes To me, and says that they have the truth of God, that they be able to go into the scriptures and tell me, How is this consistent with what you see? And that may take a while to unpack, but I'm still going to demand that. You can't just pull stuff out of thin air. I will still ask, Okay, how does this compare to the teachings of the church over the centuries? Not that we can't change, but let's have that conversation. I don't have all the answers. I don't pretend that. It's my job to be, in many ways, more of a spiritual guide, to help you find God yourself and experience God yourself and live out as a disciple yourself. And part of that is teaching what we know, the facts we have, the doctrines we adhere to. But at some point, you have to go home, or you may already be home, uh, and put that into practice in your life and find the way you can experience God and live that out for yourself. And I know that there can often be a lot of anxiety around that kind of thinking. You know, we live in a world where everything changes, right? If there's anything that's a constant in our world, it's change. And what is acceptable one day is not, and what is good one day is not, and what works one day is not one gizmo that, that one gizmo that's the hottest thing tomorrow is useless, nothing stays the same. And in a world where everything's just spinning like this, I can understand the appeal of wanting to say, of wanting to turn to faith and make it the one eternal, absolute, total, unchanging hard and fast rock that will anchor me in this storm. Now, I do believe that God is the unchanging rock that anchors me in the storm. But my doctrines are not God. My doctrines help point me to God. We have truths we know and stuff we don't know. And at the end of the day, we have to, uh, we have to accept that, you know, we are standing before a God that we see somewhat but a God who is so much bigger, so much more awesome and powerful that we can imagine, that we have some knowledge and a lot of mystery. And that that's how faith will always be. That, That God is with us wherever our knowledge is. And that we don't need to have absolute truth to be able to have faith. But I will say this to some of my friends on the other side who are all, God is the essence of the stuff, of the being, of the things, of the, of the, of the, of the. And I'm kind of like, what do you really believe? Well, believe is such a strong word. Like holy mackerel. I'm not in that place. And what I usually say to them is, look, you have to have some truths to get to the mystery. So think about things like the black holes again. We're only beginning to scrape the surface of how black holes operate and what they are. But if you look back in human history, we have not known about black holes very long. I mean, we're, we're talking, what, 100 years? That's not a long time to know about something that could potentially be you know, changing our whole understanding of how the universe works. We've only known about that small amount of time. And, and there's all sorts of things about them that are mysterious. You know, there's more stuff that goes in than that comes out. Why? We don't know. That violates the laws of physics. But somehow it happens. We know it's real. But so we stand in front of a black hole and we have kind of this awe. But to be in awe and understand all the knowledge we don't have and and to be in awe of the mystery of it, you have to know it's there. And the more knowledge you get about it, the more you learn that you don't know. And that's kind of how it is with faith. The more we learn about the scriptures, the more we, we, we connect ourselves to God, we grow. But the more we grow, the more we gain, the more we learn we don't know. And that's how a life of faith works. It's an awesome place to be, to encounter God in the scriptures and to learn about God in prayers, to encounter the spirit in our experiences. And the more you stand in awe of how God of how great God really is and how much there is that we've barely scratched the surface of. God's love is so big, so powerful, his truths are so deep that I will ever only in this life get a small bit of it. But I know I'm standing in front of something awesome. So I hope that in teaching that I'm giving the best building blocks I can to share for you to share, for you to piece together and find a path when you're back at your home and your work so that you can discover and stand in that awesome presence of God yourself. I hope I'm giving you the tools to take that message of Jesus to your home, your work, to Facebook, wherever you go, so that we all can live like Jesus and know him personally and stand in that awesome presence. Amen.